Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. I've devoted the last two podcasts to the Greek myth of Demeter and Persephone and the connection between the life of the soul, initiation, and the underworld. Most of the questions and comments that I received about these programs revolve around the Greek ideas about the underworld and the underworld experience, which is a common fascination. (laughs) Whether or not you're intrigued or frightened by the prospect, or feel that you've been there, maybe more than once, the image of the underworld remains a potent metaphor for our descent into the deepest mysteries in human life. So today I want to tell you another story from Greek mythology that involves the underworld, and talk a little bit more about the Greek notions of the place and those who managed to make the trip and return. Many of the stories about the underworld didn't survive the centuries. We do know that there were at least three realms. The most desirable was the Elysian field, meadows full of flowers, where the dead spent their day lounging around in the sun or playing sports. This was the place for the blessed dead, the heroes who were champions of the gods, and a few other extremely good people that the immortals smiled upon. Another realm was Tartarus, the bowels, literally, of the underworld, and a prison for the enemies of the Olympians and the very evil. Those who were consigned to Tartarus often suffered terrible, repetitive tortures, the repetition for eternity being essential to their terribleness. Tantalus, for example, who was a god, often tried the patience of Zeus with his arrogance and lies. But what landed him in the underworld dungeon of Tartarus was the act of killing and cooking his own son and serving him to the other gods at a feast. Now, killing a family member was greatly frowned upon by the Greeks. Before the gods, having the audacity to try to trick them, well, that took a To a whole other level. Now, as with many Greek myths, there are variations on his story, but the one most commonly told describes Tantalus's punishment like this He was set up to feel eternal hunger and thirst. Tantalus stood for all of eternity in water up to his neck, but he could not drink because every time he bent his head, the water receded below his reach. Similarly, above his head, there was a branch laden with sweet fruit, but every time he lifted his head and stretched up to take a bite, the bough sprang out of reach. You may recognize this parallel between crime and punishment. This was later observed by Dante and used in his description of hell in the Inferno. Most of the Greek underworld was a lifeless gray land, shades upon shades of gray, inhabited by the gray shadows or shades, what we commonly call ghosts, of the worn-out human beings who had lived typical 
unremarkable lives. No one hurt or hounded them down there, but it was a place of perpetual emptiness in which the energy and beauty and feeling of actual life were absent, and the memories of these things could be painful. This is where the majority of mortals ended up. No wonder the Greeks gave us such a fine sense of the tragic, right? But what about the folks who made the trips to the underworld and came back? There were immortals, the god Hermes, for example, who made regular trips back and forth as Zeus's messenger and as the psychopomp or guide of the souls of humans and heroes when they died and had to go down. There was Persephone. And we know from the myth that I recently shared that she was abducted and didn't go willingly, but did become queen of the underworld with the privilege of making lovely spring and summertime visits to see her mother, the goddess Demeter. The other immortals had little reason or desire to go to such a place, given all the life and amusements in the upper realms. And if they did, well, they had capacities and powers far beyond that of human beings like us. There were Greek heroes who made underworld journeys, usually sent to perform arduous tasks or to earn the right to make requests of the gods that were considered preposterous. And yet these heroes, too, were special, blessed by the gods or goddesses, and often having such a divine progenitor. The hero Heracles who made two or three trips to the underworld, was the son of Zeus, for example. Odysseus, who was sent by Circe to ask the dead prophet Tiresias how to get home to Ithaca, ventured only to the outskirts of the place, and he was championed by the goddess Athena, obviously had the blessings of Circe, and his maternal grandfather was Hermes. What of us mere mortals, living ordinary, limited lives? Human beings ended up in the underworld eventually, at the time of death decreed by the fates. But what about the handful we know from surviving myths who went to the underworld and made it back to the land of the living again? These people often returned bearing gifts of the underworld, commonly expressed as an otherworldly enhancement of their beauty in body and character. Sometimes they were granted immortality upon their return. The lovely young woman Psyche, who was sent to the underworld by the goddess Aphrodite in order to prove her fitness as the spouse of Aphrodite's son, the god of love, Eros, lived happily ever after on Mount Olympus when her trials had ended. The Greeks made an important distinction, one that applied to these lucky round-trip travelers and also the people who simply died at the appointed time. This was a distinction between the initiates and the uninitiated. Those who went to the underworld and stayed there and were initiated were believed to have a better experience. Now, initiation was tied to the Eleusinian mysteries and the myth of Demeter and Persephone, as you know from the earlier podcast. Initiates underwent the rituals to lose their fear of death. But let's unpack this a bit further. 
At first blush, the difference between these two groups, the initiates and the uninitiated, is a matter of experience. One group of people went through the initiation process and the trials imposed by those rites. They likely underwent a process of purification and of altered consciousness and ultimately apprehended the truth about life and death that's otherwise concealed from us or is too frightening to contemplate without that ritual container. And yet, there's another difference between the two. One that is immediately useful to us today, separated as we are by centuries from the Eleusinian mysteries, and often searching, at least I am, for a way to reconcile ourselves to the truth of our existence. This difference is also essential to the underworld journeys that many of us are called to make that involve a different type of death, ego death, and the loss of cherished dreams and fantasies, beliefs, various forms of security, good physical health, the people and places that we love, etc. The vast majority of us, maybe all of us, face this kind of death. And this death involves a drop into the underworld that depth psychology calls the unconscious, a well-populated place that frequently sends up messages and messengers, like dreams, for example. In The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell writes, The unconscious sends all sorts of vapors, odd beings, terrors, and deluding images up into the mind, whether in dreams, broad daylight, or insanity. For the human kingdom, beneath the floor of the comparatively neat dwelling that we call our consciousness, goes down into unsuspected Aladdin caves. In the spirit of man, art, and literature, Jung writes of the katabasis, the ancient Greek word for some type of descent, as a descent into the cave of initiation and secret knowledge. A central purpose of this journey, according to Jung, is gaining an authentic understanding of wholeness and the ability to see the underlying unity in what appears to the uninitiated as irreconcilable opposites. This underworld journey, like the one that we make at the time of our physical death, is essential to become a a mature human being. So what is this difference this quality that is essential to our successful descent and surviving these ego deaths. That quality is willingness. The willingness to descend. The willingness to accept the requisite suffering, even the dissolution of the ego certainty and our tenacious grasp on the personality and the life that it creates from the stories it loves to tell. The willingness to trust the process and put faith in the outcome in order to enter the greater mysteries of life, soul, self, and cosmos. The old myths and the stories that we share on this podcast tell us time and again that human life is a process and that everything is subject to change most significantly, changes beyond our control. 
But despite wisdom in the stories and our own experiences of this, the common impulse is to hold on, to manufacture a comfortable, secure, stable world in which we can live content and minimally challenged or threatened by the real world. (laughs) This is a fantasy, and if you are awake, you know it. But the tension between these tendencies still exists. Hence the countless stories that describe life as change in myriad forms and their great value to us who turn to them as guides, not guides along a specific or literal path, but guides into that knowing that change is inevitable and survivable and that it is best to participate if we want to be fully alive and present in the miracle of aliveness, no matter what the final outcome. Willingness, then, is our desired attitude, especially for the seekers, who I think, observing the ones that I know, are ultimately questing for this initiation and the transformation it promises. You might call this enlightenment, or self-actualization, or individuation, or the deepest and most peaceful relationship to reality that you can muster. What might provoke this degree of willingness, you might ask? This is what I've been thinking about, and I want to share a short Greek myth that's helping me with this problem. It's the story of Alcestis, and it's really a fragment, really, and yet it's worthy of reflection. Alcestis was the daughter of King Peleus and Anaxiaba. She was beautiful and pious, and many suitors sought her hand. The young man, Admetus, was among them, but there was a problem. Daddy Peleus had decreed that his daughter would only marry the man whose chariot was drawn by a lion and a wild boar yoked together. This was clearly a difficult, if not impossible, task, unless, of course, you have divine assistance. Now, the god Apollo loved Admetus for his earlier kindness. Years before, the god Apollo had angered his father Zeus by killing a few of Zeus's favorite cyclops. That this was in retaliation for Zeus having killed Apollo's son Asclepius with a thunderbolt, was of no matter. As we've talked about before, eternity and immortal life can be very dull without some feuds and bloodshed and infidelity and power games to mix things up. So to punish Apollo, Zeus decreed that he would have to work as a shepherd for a mortal. And that mortal ended up being Admetus, who was very kind to the god Apollo and didn't revel in his humiliation. This earned Admetus the friendship of Apollo, and Apollo helped him to succeed at meeting King Peleus' test and winning the hand of the lovely Alcestis. Euripides wrote a play about Alcestis, And he tells us that these two were very happily married. 
And I'm going to get back to Euripides and his play a little bit later in this podcast. But Apollo was not done with his favors to Admetus. Maybe he was still grateful, or maybe he was in love himself with Admetus. Apollo was known to fall in love with beautiful young men. In any event, he went to the fates, the three sisters who determined the length of every human life, and got them drunk. This was necessary because the fates were completely inflexible about any changes to the decisions they made about the length of a mortal life. And Apollo wanted them to extend Admetus's life. He was destined to die too young, as far as Apollo was concerned. The drunken fates agreed to make an adjustment, but on one condition that someone else in the family would willingly agree to die on the appointed day in the place of Admetus. No one volunteered to perform this fatal act of service, not even his aged father or mother, who'd already lived long lives, until Acestus, moved by her great love for her husband, decided to make this great sacrifice. Now, she had a happy life as a queen, a beloved spouse, two small children, and yet she agreed to go. Admetus was heartbroken at the thought of losing his wife, but he could not compel another to make the choice. They had to be willing, and tellingly, he let Alcestis die for him, rather than accept his original fate. So Alcestis died. Some say that Heracles was traveling nearby and stopped to visit his friend, Ametus. He saw the mourners. He wondered what had happened. Admetus had a few drinks with his friend before he told him that everyone was mourning the queen. Hearing this, Heracles jumped up from his seat, ran out to the burial procession, and wrestled Thanatos, which was death, for the return of Alcestis. Some say that Heracles actually had to make the journey into the underworld to retrieve her, and that he brought Alcestis back more radiant and beautiful than before. And some say that the goddess Persephone, dread queen of the underworld, was so moved by Alcestis's love and devotion to her husband that she returned the young queen to the land of the living. Now, I mentioned Euripides and his play a moment ago. In the first episode, he writes, How could a woman show more devotion to her man than to die for him? This is a sentiment likely shared by many of the men in his audience. And yet, Euripides was skeptical of the Greeks' admiration for heroes. 
this skepticism and the challenges to Greek values that Euripides embedded in his plays severely limited his success as a playwright in his lifetime, despite his brilliance. Now, Euripides was not a feminist. This concept was completely foreign to the Greeks. But he wrote a number of plays about women and their plight, especially as victims of the exploits of the heroes and their propensity for war. In Euripides' play, Adametus grieves, and the men who are there in his court, his other friends, debate the rightness of his action. One of Jackson says, hey, Adametus, we are allotted one life each, not two. To which Admetus replies, and you'd make yours as long as Zeus's, wouldn't you? In the end, Admetus claims that his wife is the true hero, although he seems throughout this play to be primarily preoccupied with his own grief and how hard his life is going to be and how sad he is and how hard it's going to be to find another wife. In the end of the play, Euripides brings Alcestis back, but he doesn't say very much about their reunion, leaving us to ponder the choices that these two lovers made. What will we do for love? And what can love help us to endure? Is love the secret to our necessary willingness to be fully alive even in the face of our underworld journeys? In this short poem, Rumi writes, A stone I died, and rose again a plant. A plant I died, and rose an animal. I died an animal, and was born a man. Why should I fear? What have I lost by death? Wise words from an initiate, friends, who is deeply in love with life and all things visible and invisible. Although Rumi is writing about physical death, his insight applies to every descent that we must make that destroys our fantasies and certainties. The underworld is a frightening place, and yet the Greek name for its ruling principle, the god Hades, means holder of treasure, one who gives wealth. May we all love deeply enough to receive it. That's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. Seriously, this provides me (laughs) with a lot of uh, direction for these programs. If you're new to Myth in the Mojave, I invite you to go to the Myth in the Mojave website, or the Facebook page and subscribe so that you receive regular program announcements every time I release a new podcast. I am very grateful to all of you who support this program by sharing it with others and spreading the word about what we're doing here. And I am deeply grateful to those of you who are members of the community on Bandcamp. 
If you are finding something of value in Myth in the Mojave, I hope you'll consider joining the community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs that are archived there, as well as free downloads of everything new that I create. And of particular importance to me, you give me the financial resources to make future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive. Mm-hmm.